0: Welcome to Wireless Future. I'm Emil Björnsson and as usual I'm here with Eric Larsson. How are you today?
1: Good morning, Emil. I'm fine. How are you today?
0: I'm great. It's still bright in the mornings even if it's at the darkest time of the year here in Sweden. Indeed. So uh, today I was planning that we should uh, Think about this quote that sometimes uh, people are referring to by George Box saying that all models are wrong, but some are useful. (laughs) I guess it's Mm -hmm. a statistician that have been looking into data analysis in general. But um, if we think now about our field um, uh, and that we will cover this topic, then uh, what is really a model within wireless communications?
1: Mm. Yeah, a model, so I think, if we really seek a definition of the term, I mean, it would be something to the effect of a mathematical description of a either a physical phenomenon or some other behavior or something that we observe in nature, right? I mean, it could be the, the, the physics itself or it could be the behavior of, of a human or, or, or a user in a, in a system, for example. But um, um, a mathematical representation, I think, of, of a physical phenomenon... Um,
0: Okay, so that is a model. So these models that we have, are they exact or are they wrong or is there anything in between being <laughs> exact and wrong?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, I s- at some point, I mean, this becomes like more philosophy than, than, than science perhaps even, right? But I mean, mm. if we think of physics, I think it's reasonable to say that Well, Maxwell's equations, for example, they are exact as long as we aren't in a regime where relativistic or quantum effects play a role, right? And the same with Newton mechanics that it's, um, well, it's exact, or we can treat it as exact if we aren't moving too fast, such that relativistic effects uh, play a role. Mm. Um, In quantum mechanics, I'm not sure I know or (laughs) whether anyone really knows, I mean, or... um, is, is a, a quantum mechanic description of the world exact or not? Um, again, I mean, at some point this might become more belief or, or um, philosophy <laughs> than, than than science. Um, now, in wireless comms, we tend to rely, I think, mostly on physical models that are rooted in the Maxwell equations. And from that perspective, um, I think it is a reasonable starting point to take to say that those e- equations are are exact representations of, of reality for our purposes, right? And of course, in, in practice, we usually don't solve or often don't solve Maxwell's equations directly, but yeah. rather rely on various abstractions for them that, you know, take the form of like path loss models and Rayleigh fading and so forth, right? Uh, which are certainly not exact, but rather idealized ways of abstracting away a lot of difficulties instead still ending up with something that captures to the first order what's really going on in the physics.
0: Yeah I think this is a, a what you said here is also important that models can be modeling things in different detail, but sometimes we don't need all of these details in order to understand the world around us. I I suppose I I don't understand quantum mechanics at all, but I (laughs) still feel that I have a good sense of the the basic physical phenomena around me so that uh, I can abstract away some of those (laughs) effects. So you were hinting a bit about um, the Maxwell equations and uh, that maybe one can use simplifications. So, so if we start more generally, what do we need models for when we are um, doing wireless research or building wireless systems?
1: Yeah, Why we need, what we need models for almost everything, right, I mean from algorithm design to planning networks to evaluating or at least predicting performance. Um, of systems and of algorithms and and this goes on all layers i mean on, on on higher layers then we need models for like how do users behave how do they move around maybe ge- ge- geographically like mobility models and so forth right w- what is the contents of say data packets that are transmitted in a wireless network how long are they and how <laughs> Um, well um, what do they contain and how, how critical is the, the contents that they they have uh, as well uh, on the middle layer I mean we need models to uh, describe arrival processes for example of traffic the hmm. intermittent nature of, of packet arrivals I think it's just one example and Then on on the physical layer we need models for the the actual wireless propagation and for the circuits, for the hardware, I mean antennas and amplifiers and filters and all the electronics that go into our devices, Uh, noise uh, of course, uh, thermal noise. So the short answer, I think, is everywhere. (laughs) And the long answer is just, you know, the the partial list of examples that I gave, right?
0: Yeah, no, I think if we study any textbook uh, in wireless communications, and uh, yeah, irrespectively if it's focusing on the physical layer or some of the other layers that you were mentioning, I think it's a lot about presenting a model and then presenting algorithms uh, that might be used to, to study or communicate given that type of of model and uh, yes, do you have the feeling that we are needing more and more detailed or accurate model now over time or uh, is it the same models that we have been using all along when building wireless systems?
1: Yeah, (laughs) Um, in a way I feel like, I mean we're getting, if you look at the literature, on wireless comms or communications in general, I, I think it's probably correct to say that, I mean, the amount of knowledge around modeling and the number of different models that are around that people use is just increasing over time. And that might be the consequence of a number of effects. Um, one, of course, is that folks who do modeling <laughs> will want to be productive, right, and come up with new models and so mm-hmm. forth. Another is that having sophisticated models can be genuinely useful both for performance analysis and prediction and and also for algorithm design Um, but i think there is an important thing here that we ought to point out and stress and uh, it is the fact that there is a huge distinction between relying on a model for algorithm design and using a model for performance prediction right i mean Mm -hmm. There's nothing really, well, I mean, there's nothing really that implies that just because you're using a particular model when you design your algorithms, that you should or even can use the same model when you later evaluate its performance. I think a good example is in the, the um, MIMO and massive MIMO literature and methodology that we both <laughs> worked, let's say, a bit on. Mm. And um, where it's rather common in some literature to build algorithms that um, rely on assumptions on the small-scale fading so for example, um, much of the like, traditional literature assumed uncorrelated or independent Rayleigh fading. And um, more recent literature, um, where you I think you have been <laughs> one of the main contributors, <laughs> Emil, um, rather relies on um, Rayleigh fading models where you have uh, correlation among the antennas, so correlated Rayleigh fading, right? And I think the point here then is that now um, I mean, wh- one of the like main selling points, in my view, massive MIMO technology is that uh, it functions without making prior assumptions in the propagation environment. Mm. Um, at least in its like canonical form, TDD reciprocity and all that, right? So, Which implies that when you design algorithms, you want to make the minimum amount of prior assumptions on your... Propagation and design algorithms that are just completely agnostic to what's going on out there, right? And minimum assumptions mean to use prior densities that are uh, have as much randomness as possible or as, as high entropy as possible. And then the independent Rayleigh fading is, is a great model because it essentially tells us that we know almost nothing about what the propagation environment looks like, right? Mm. And then later on when you actually evaluate performance and make predictions like what is this going to perform like in a real network then certainly plug something in there which is more realistic be it correlated Rayleigh fading or be it some channel model from the cost standard or or, or somewhere else right I mean it makes perfect sense but my, my point here is that there is a huge distinction between designing an algorithm that requires no prior knowledge, like massive MIMO with independent Rayleigh fading, and evaluating it under more realistic conditions or for more realistic models, on one hand. And on the other hand, to design an algorithm that assumes that, look, we have correlated fading with some very specific correlation matrix, and of course we can do better, right? But then we have prior knowledge that the algorithm needs, and which we don't know. Number one, how will it acquire? And number two, how accurate is it? Um, So um, to reiterate the main message here, again, I mean, we've got to distinguish between reliance on very specific models for the algorithm design on one hand and the use of sophisticated models for performance prediction um, and evaluation on the other hand.
0: Yeah, I I think you are pointing out a very important message here, and uh, that there it's easy to to sort of you design your algorithm, then you evaluate it on the same models given mm. its characteristics. There and there is the risk that yeah. we sort of are are then making. Uh, some or conclusions based on <laughs> it, that, uh, that can be a bit misleading. I mean, on, on one hand, if we design algorithms for ID Rayleigh fading for this good reason that you were describing, and then we apply them with ID Rayleigh fading, uh, they might then, uh, for example, uh, th- th- this pilot contamination issue that we have been discussing. A lot in previous episodes, uh, probably is at its worst under IID radio fading. Uh, to some extent it's like that. Uh, mm. At the same time, yeah, if yeah, we are yeah. modeling the correlated radio fading and we have correlated radio fading, uh, we, we get maybe the best case situation and yeah. probably we are somewhere <laughs> in between there in reality. Uh, so we, we shouldn't use that side information when we design the algorithm, but we should evaluate the algorithm we have on a model that might be more realistic.
1: Exactly. That's my point. I mean, and I mean, it's a bit analog to testing on the training data, right? Yeah. <laughs> that we, we, when we build algorithms, we would want them to be as robust as possible and rely on as little as possible of prior knowledge, which might not be accurately available in practice. And then once we have our algorithms, then, well, let's go ahead and evaluate them on the best available, you know, um in this case then fading models and see how they perform.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And what you're alluding to there also with the whole race of machine learning, there we have the danger that if we are not using real measurement of the reality but we are using our best models that we used to use for simulations and then we throw a machine learning algorithm on it it might be able to invert simplifications that we were having in the models or all the kinds of things that you weren't supposed to actually exploit when designing the algorithm so
1: yes that is a great point indeed i think and you know you could train a machine learning algorithm to be extremely perform extremely well on uh, some specific model that you have trained it on but then we really do know how does it function on in other scenarios and on other models right and as a matter of fact all the models we use for the wireless physical layer are are quite specific even correlated Rayleigh really fading might seem like a fairly general model but indeed it's not i mean for number one it requires stationarity of the fading and number two it's it's still, I mean, really with 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 uh, correlation, right? And you plug in a lot of information in this in this correlation matrices, and even if you model your environment with clusters of, of scattering objects and all that, well, that's is still just the first order approximation of the actual physics, and yeah. over reliance on that in the algorithm design, uh, I think, is a dangerous path to go.
0: Yeah, so, so let us then uh, focus for a while on the physical layer and talk about some of the models we are having there. So a lot of the basic work that we are doing is this complex baseband representation where we are describing passband signals that are continuous with sampled signals that we have in the complex baseband. Is this mm-hmm. an accurate representation or other cases where we should <laughs> question the use
1: of it? no i think you can say with a clean conscience that these are exact representations i mean at some point this becomes also a little bit like more philosophy or even mm. religion than science right i mean for example what is time yeah uh, the mathematical describe description of time that we use in in physical models is a real number right what is a real number well it's a limit point of a sequence of you know <laughs> rational or, or r- rationals as one one construction at least right and mm. uh what w- what actually tells us that time is a real number well we don't really know right but um, or, or we can't really say but um, given that we accept that then certainly the things that you mentioned here like um, complex uh, baseband representations of narrowband waveforms and so on these are just mathematical facts right that result mm-hmm. from well the axioms of integers combined with the assumption that physical time can be represented as a real number <laughs> mm. and the amplitudes for that matter I mean when we speak of the amplitude of, of uh, an electric or a magnetic field then can we represent that as a real number I mean there's some sort of like assumption modeling assumption behind that as well but if we accept that then I think we can say that all these like models for signals that we teach in like signals and system class they are just mathematically exact
0: yeah but but, uh, when we are developing these models we we might be considering how we're transmitting for infinitely long time and we have a limited bandwidth but then when we use them we are transmitting a block of a finite length and no signal can be both time and frequency limited right is this an issue to care about
1: certainly i mean but that can, is uh, when, uh, treated rigorously in theory, right? It's just yeah. the way approximate the way because we, 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 we'd we want to stay with reasonably simple mathematics. So, uh, I mean, I think what you're after here is like, well, the sampling theorem, for that to hold, it's actually a statement of a limit, right? <laughs> Where you, you need, mm. uh, well, uh, like infinitely long uh, signal in continuous time and then Only such a signal can be strictly band-limited, of course, but it's not that we cannot treat finite duration signals rigorously, it's more that we don't want to do it because the mathematics becomes so complicated that it obscures uh, things that are really important.
0: Yeah, and in the systems that we are actually building, our signals are reaching a little bit outside the, the supposed bandwidth, oh, and yeah. we have masks to say how much they are allowed to do that. So we, we are sort of <laughs> <Certainly>. treating it. <laughs> uh, so then given the complex baseband representation, what about um, uh, like uh, signals of system theory? Do we have linear time invariant systems?
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, I mean, one thing at a time, right? So linearity, uh, yes, insofar the phenomena that we work with can be described as solutions to the wave equation, um, Hmm. which for the electromagnetic case is the Maxwell's equation or set of equations. Um, These are linear differential equations. So if X solves the equation and Y solves it, then X plus Y also. Uh, <laughs> solves it right so so for that reason we have linearity um there are um phenomena that appear in in circuits and so forth that are non-linear that we hmm. sometimes actually need to consider but if we think of just like wave propagation it's it's absolutely linear um, time invariance well Not really, right? As we know, if you have a uh, transmitter and a receiver and they move relative to one another, then we'll experience Doppler. Mm -hmm. And um, the system that describes transmitted signal in, received signal out is time variant um, by all means, but that can also be modeled. I mean, as a first order approximation of... Like getting rid of the difficulty with the time variance is that we say, well, let's zoom in on the time axis, and look at a short enough interval um, during which the the system is substantially uh, static, mm-hmm. uh, or no, rather time uh, substantially time invariant, and that's what we usually call a coherence block or coherence time in wireless. So certainly we approximate away a lot of things, often not always, um, but uh, fundamentally, mean we, we uh, wave propagation can be described via a li- linear time variant system, and then if we chop the time axis up into small enough chunks, then we can. Again, with a clean conscious, I mean, say that we have a linear time (laughs) invariant system there, right? So that's what we do in much of the analysis.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so let's then have this clean conscious. We can chop up time axis into piecewise constant uh, uh, linear time invariant systems. Uh, Then we often are modeling the, the coefficients of these impulse responses that we have then using Rayleigh fading. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, but let's for the moment just focus on a single transmitter and a single receive antenna, uh, then why do we get Rayleigh fading? Is this really a good model, or is it just the I mean, normal distribution that is that is underneath there? Uh, it is the simplest type of model. Is it just for convenience, or, or is this really what we are seeing in reality?
1: Mm. No, I mean, you can justify it through various different arguments, right? I mean, one we're justifying it is through the central limit theorem that you have a superposition of independent paths and so forth. But you can also use more physical models like the, the, the Clark or the, 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 the Jake's model, um, where you, you model the superposition more explicitly. And um, so I, I think the short answer is. It's a fairly good model when you have like rich scattering or, or fluctuating uh, target. Um, hmm. goes back all the way to the radar literature, actually quite far back in the last century. Um, obviously, it's not, it's not an exact thing, right? I mean, for one thing, the, the Rayleigh distribution has like unbound, uh, unbounded support, so... <laughs> there's always a non-zero probability that you get any arbitrarily large value picked there's a non-zero probability that you'd get that 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 amplitude which is obviously unphysical on the other hand the tail goes exponentially fast to zero so in practice that's nothing we ever need to worry about um, perhaps the important feature really of the Rayleigh distribution is that it has a lot of mass around the origin and the I think best way to see that is actually to look at the squared amplitude which is exponential, right? And the exponential, we know it starts at one and then it goes like down, hmm. but it has a lot of mass around the origin. And in fact, as long as we use a small scale fading distribution that has this property, that has a substantial like amount of mass around the origin, then we'll get very similar conclusions as if we had Rayleigh fading. So the assumption on Rayleigh per se isn't really critical. Almost anything else would work there as long as we have this mass near the origin. Uh, the advantage with the Rayleigh is that, uh, well, the Rayleigh is the magnitude of a complex, uh, circularly symmetric complex Gaussian <laughs> random number, right? And we know that Gaussian distributions are just <laughs> awesome to work with for <laughs> for many reasons uh, mm. mathematically. So I think that's that's really the the uh, best even justification for, for the Rayleigh density as such.
0: Yeah, I ran a simulation for one of my lectures where I had like six propagation paths coming from the transmitter receiver. All of them were equally strong but they were coming in with a random phase shift uh, uh, and then the distribution that you get then is very close to a Rayleigh really fading yeah. case. So
1: with, to the bare eye you can't tell the difference. No, right? Exactly, I mean, so, <laughs> so uh, as soon as you have
0: like uh, more than five paths it seemed to, to work fine. Then we also have this Reichen fading model that people are mm. considering, which I suppose this is when we have one path that is dominating together from the other one. I mean, from a central mm. limit theorem perspective, we, we want to have many random contributions that are roughly the same uh, kind of distribution. Uh, and uh, then if one of them is much stronger than the other one, it stands out still.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you have a a direct line of sight component and then on top of that you have Rayleigh scattering, then the Ryzen model is extremely good, right? Um, uh, The only thing is one has to be a little careful, I think, that when we use these models for algorithm design, the question is then what does the algorithm know, right? Mm. For Rayleigh fading, then it's like, well, the algorithm might know the standard deviation of the, or the, the variance of the Rayleigh variable which is well it might not be known perfectly in practice but it isn't a big deal i mean if you, if you design your algorithm and you apply pl- plug in a number which is slightly different or wrong there it doesn't make a huge difference so it isn't a big deal now if you work with the uh, riceian uh, distribution then you need the path gain for the line of sight component including its face hmm. and uh, that's more dangerous to plug in as prior knowledge in an algorithm because that uh, the face of that random uh, sorry, the face of that line of sight component will change potentially uh, randomly <laughs> and on the same time scale as the the Rayleigh fluctuations do right. I mean you move half a wavelength and the thing is completely wrong. you you move well, if you move half a wavelength the, the even the sign changes, right So, mm. <laughs> so you got to be very careful there what you what you consider known by your algorithm. And we, I think we're back a little bit at what we discussed earlier here. Mm. Uh, in terms of like models used for, that we use for algorithm design versus model that we use for performance evaluation later. So, so, I mean, a safe approach here would be to, well, let's design the algorithm as if we had Rayleigh fading and then we get our algorithm. and Then once we have it, we can play with it and we can evaluate how well does it work now if we instead had Rayleigh fading and that's absolutely fine. But if we design the algorithm up front for rising fading, it might be that this algorithm either needs a genie that tells us the face of the line of sight component, or it needs some kind of mechanism for tracking that, right? Which is like a whole different game to play. Um, So so with that caveat, um, you know, certainly there is, these are classical models that have been used for many decades and are easy to justify from basic physics and also Mm. fit rather well with like measurements, right?
0: Yeah, so, so I guess also if we will use the same uh, algorithm all the time in our system, but then the users move around and sometimes one model is good in one propagation environment and mm. and sometimes another is uh, good, then we might not be able to change our algorithm. But it seems like the, the tails of this distribution still have some kind of important impact. I guess in the lower tail, how Often we get really deep fades that are bad. I think in textbook you can see this bit rate curves, yeah. and you have different slopes or different location of the curves depending on Israeli fading or rising. And
1: mm-hmm. yeah, but we gotta be careful with the tails, right? I mean, fortunately, for all reasonable models that I know of, at least the tail dies off exponentially fast hmm. to zero. So, it, which means that you just go a couple of sigmas out, and it's zero to any practical to any to any. Uh, um, practical significance Um, and there might be something to keep in mind when you say like I think you said that well uh, there's a chance to get really high values right Mm.
0: there's
1: even a whole category of algorithms that rely on um, that um, exploiting multi-user diversity that was like popular like 20 years ago to do research on and looking at like well you got these users out there and you kind of try to ride on the peaks and pick the one that has the best fading at the moment and when you do that it's like you take the maximum of a bunch of Rayleigh distributed variables and then you're suddenly operating at the tail of the distribution where the model hasn't been really tested and verified by by much of measurements and where at some point it just becomes unphysical right so you gotta be a little careful i think when when arguing, (laughs) when using the model too far away from it, from the origin, let's say.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think you're pointing also here at the more general thing that a model might be good for what it was originally designed for, but then Mm. when we start to study it as some totics, I mean, it makes sense that if you have multiple users, some of them will have a good channel, some of them will have a bad channel. So there is some kind of multi-use diversity if you Pick people when they have their peak values, uh, then you should be able to do better. But that doesn't mean that you can study the asymptotics as no. was done in defining <laughs> what is called the multi user diversity gain, where you say, oh, when the number of users go to infinity and we magically know all the channel realizations, then we can pick the best one and that value goes to infinity as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so, asymptotics is always dangerous.
1: <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> okay, so. Uh, Let's uh, move on a little bit. Uh, what about noise? We are often modeling noise as being just an independent complex Gaussian random variable. Is that a reasonable model?
1: Um, yeah, I think much of the time. I mean if we speak of thermal noise, then mainly I suppose here, then I think gaussianity is an extremely good assumption Hmm. then saying that it's uncorrelated we got to be a little careful I mean it might be it might be like reasonably white over frequency in many cases but it's also common to assume for example in MIMO systems analysis that the noise is uncorrelated among the antennas right. Um, We've got to be a little careful though because hmm. effects like mutual coupling can play in, for example, and depending on where um, the main noise sources are in the electronics, um, then coupling can make the noise correlated. So, But I mean, just so, so the first order of approximation, it's pretty reasonable to say that it's independent, but we, we should be aware that this is not an exact thing. Yeah. Um,
0: no, and, and you were maybe purposely not mentioning time there as well, because I think in addition to the thermal noise there's also impulse noise sources, whether it's interference or something else that are yeah. appearing. Yeah,
1: but in, in, interference isn't really... well, what is noise and what is yeah, interference? Yeah, exactly. That's right? what I, I was mean, thinking. I like to think of noise as really thermal noise. Mm. Uh, an interference stemming from, like, other man-made sources. Uh, it could be other radio transmitters. It could be other equipment that just interferes, right? I mean, it could be something, you know, like a welding machine or something that generates impulsive and <laughs> spiky. Um, it, well, interference, I think, would really be the... Electromagnetic interference, I think, would be the proper term here, although we treat it as, I quotes noise... When dealing with it mathematically, uh, often, uh, but we got to be clear what what do we mean by by noise? Do we mean only thermal noise, or do we also mean other things? Right?
0: Yeah. No, I was thinking about often in real system we use, uh, I guess it's called interleaving, where we sort of we take our bits and we scramble them a bit uh, mm. and we send them in a not in the intended order, and then we mix it back again. Is this to to sort of make it look more independent over time and frequency, or? Yeah,
1: certainly. I mean, but we got to again distinguish between noise on the physical layer that enters into our continuous time models for signals, where signal really means the electrical field or the voltage in a circuit or a current in a circuit somewhere. So distinguish between that on one hand. And on the other hand, the effective noise that we see on, let's say, demodulated information bits, right? It might result for one thing from thermal noise, but it might also be a consequence of interference sources and other things that can vary Mm. heavily over time and frequency. And then, as you suggested, I mean, interleaving is the standard way of breaking apart uh, bursts of (laughs) (laughs) uh, errors. So if you have a code word and many subsequent bits are affected by, for some reason, strong... um, interference or disturbance then and your channel code isn't good at handling bursty uh, disturbances like that, then the interleaver breaks them apart and, and kind of makes the the effective noise uncorrelated over time. yes
0: so now we have also focused a lot on random channels uh, models uh, like rayleigh fading or rice fading and we also talked about the the correlation that might exist but whether we, we should exploit it or not uh, when we build the algorithms is uh, of course something that uh, can be questioned but uh, why are we really modeling things randomly when it comes to a channel? Why not uh, use the the wave equation and solve it or, or do ray tracing <laughs> or make measurements? Uh, yeah. uh, uh, is it one or the other? <laughs> no, no. I, I mean,
1: solving the wave equations is just too, too complex, right? I mean, we don't have the, all the boundary conditions. You'd need like an exact geometric model for every little particle in the room here to figure out and if you had that in principle and you had unbounded computational power then certainly we could compute the impulse responses <laughs> from from between our let's say antennas mm. uh, no question so in principle that's possible but it would require us to know again the, the exact layout and every little particle in here which doesn't seem to be to be really feasible uh, so that's also really the reason why we we use statistical models um, as a as an abstraction or, or, or as a proxy for um, ultimately solutions of the wave equation.
0: Yes uh, and I think uh, also the, it's important to remember what model you need for a particular kind of uh, evaluation for example. I mean it's one thing that we design the algorithm for something but if we are interested in sort of the uh, the statistical variations in communication performance as someone is moving around in an environment that can be modeled ra- uh, by these random distributions then yes uh, we should use a random distribution. If we want to mm-hmm. understand the exact behavior of the wave propagation when you are a different location in your room then Uh, maybe we cannot still know everything so we can solve the wave equation but we can do ray tracing, we can do measurements and those will be more accurate in that specific situation. Uh...
1: Certainly I mean one could use for performance evaluation just a set of measurements right and Mm. that would result in a very good prediction for what the system would work or function or perform like in that specific environment, but the real question is how well does this generalize? Now, if you take your algorithm, your syst- system, you move it somewhere else, <laughs> will it still work as well as you <laughs> concluded
0: from your measurement sets? Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's a, a bit uh, with uh, qualitative and quantitative uh, analysis. Some things might work o- uh, over <laughs> large areas, but are not as precise for the local area, and the other way around. Uh, So what about all these path loss models that that exist? 3GPP have there, you mentioned cost models earlier and there is the Okumura-Hata models and things like this. Can we trust them? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. I guess the short answer is no, right?
1: (laughs) So path loss is a topic in itself. And I think... um, the only uncontested path loss model that we, I think we could agree on is if we are in free space and we have line of sight because the, in the amplitude of, of a, on a, a spherical wave falls as one over r mm. with, with with distance. So the power density falls as one over r squared. Now, um, for terrestrial radio, there are quite a few models for path loss. Many of them go back a long time, many decades into the past century. Um, and... Um, they capture to a varying degree of accuracy the main phenomena that we are exposed to in propagation i mean number one Mm. is the decay of amplitude with distance obviously number two is ground reflection Uh, number three is like blocking by could be trees and buildings and all sorts of things and uh, uh, most of these models take the form of uh, um, Distance and then a power or an exponent, so d to minus alpha, where d is the distance and alpha is some some exponent. And I like to say pick alpha equal to four. Uh, (laughs) It's probably quite reasonable. And then folks who have been doing modeling for 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 modeling for like their whole life, they say, well, pick alpha equal to 3.81 or something, right? Well, the 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 matter of fact is it doesn't make a huge difference in the end. And on top of of that, it's also customary to add a log normal component, which is a random multiplicative effect, which is Gaussian distributed in the log domain. That, of course, is an entirely heuristic choice. And if you look at data, I mean, if you look at plots, you can find in the standard textbooks in the field. Um, in plenty in fact I mean then you know you'll see plots right where on the horizontal axis you have distance on the vertical axis you have the path loss and then these are measurements and these plots scatter, like scatter plots and they look like you know you get really drunk and then you close your eyes and then you throw a dart at, <laughs> you throw a dart at the wall and then you know you take these scatter plots and try to fit the regression line right in log log scale and then you uh, you'll get something like well maybe this exponent is about 4 or something and then in order to explain how poor this fit actually is, then you'll say, well, let's add a random component. And lognormal happens to be mathematically convenient, so we'll pick that. And I think it's it is probably as good as it can, can uh, ever become, right? And hmm. um, the important thing here, though, is that that model, uh, in its simplicity, I think it's fair to say, I mean, there's distance to minus alpha and then plus the log normal component, Uh, It does capture the fact that there is a lot of randomness in in wireless, right? And that might be the important thing to actually capture. If we are, you know, even setting up like simple simulation model for like the the, the academic papers, right? So you have a cell and then you have a tower and then you have users and you throw them out at random in the cell and so forth. And now let's model the... Like path loss spread, and what's really important there is to capture the randomness that some users hmm. are gonna be very close to the tower, might even have line of sight. Some other are gonna be far away. They might be shadowed by some objects and have extremely poor path loss. So there is an enormous spread between the best and the worst uh, condition and, and and best and the worst path loss that anyone will ever see, and that is, I think, highly important to capture. I mean, this richness in the randomness. And the, the available path loss models do capture that. I mean, so um, although it should be stressed, I think that the log-normal fading is an important component of that, right? I mean, the, the, this d to minus alpha path loss might suggest that path loss is something exact, that it's an exact function of distance. No, it's not. And any analysis that relies on the suggestion that path loss is an exact relation with distance, I think is bound to give very likely to, to to give misleading conclusions. and the, the the shadowing component is highly important to add in there in order to really model effect and, and the amount of randomness that we do have in reality.
0: Yeah, I was just reviewing a paper that essentially assumed such a model and then tried to use it for distance estimation, and they just applied the model, designed the algorithm that inverted the model, and then uh, they, uh. yeah. So I guess that's an example of what you shouldn't do uh, when it comes to the models.
1: I mean, it, it might it might work, right? To the let's say not even first order, but if you just want to get like some estimate of the distance if you have a very high signal strength I think you can tell that you are close to the tower right but if you have a very poor signal strength then you cannot say that you're far away you can say that I'm either far away or I'm blocked by some object or I'm Mm. in the basement or something so I wouldn't say that it's completely like useless I think you can still do you can still make inference based on path loss measurements, but you got to be careful. I mean, not to over-rely on simplistic models like this D to minus alpha. And just, we got to understand that there is a lot of randomness here. And and it's so clear. If you just look at the classical textbooks, I think I opened the other day, had rappaport had this um, book, on Wireless Communications, I think is the title, right? And there are all these scary plots with, uh, <laughs> path loss versus distance and we really appreciate how how much randomness there is in uh, in, um, in in the physics behind this.
0: Yeah and I think it's important to also mention that when those type of uh, uh, yeah, graphs are being generated it isn't a drunk person who throws a dart it is actually <laughs> people who are selecting some propagation environment that's supposed to, to represent a particular Type of world, then they go around, measure actual distances and measure powers and generate these uh, these points there, and then absolutely. Uh, th- that's also <laughs> why for different scenarios there are different pathless models. I uh, what happened to me recently was I had one paper where I used a pathless exponent of three point seven six and one with three point six seven. And oh, someone got draw-
1: gotten vastly, vastly different results. Uh, no, from- <laughs> it was rather I got an
0: email for someone saying, "Oh, is this a typo?" And then I was really, "Oh, damn it! I have made an t- an error here." But then I, I looked in the same 3 gpp document that I have been referring to. You can find both of them in different tables for a slightly different propagation environment. So I had been choosing them from there, but it. I can of course wonder if it should be a big difference. Mm. Uh, But but going back to the the shadow fading there, I also have the same uh, interpretation as you that this is something we just add uh, because we see that uh, this linear regression doesn't work. So we need to add some randomness to describe the data. Uh, Yet, I I think you can see in some textbooks, I I was opening Goldsmith's textbook yesterday uh, and saw that uh, she was describing it a bit like, or trying to motivate why it is a good fit by saying, oh, the, for every path it will be blocked by different objects and they, they have a random uh, yeah, thickness and therefore in the log domain. Uh, that thickness should become a linear thing and then you have many paths so therefore it should be gaussian distributed so try to to motivate the gaussianness using some arguments and i was thinking then, what is the chicken and the egg here is it that we <laughs> should it belong normal or is it just that it works <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, that I'd, I I don't know. I have to say I'd have to read that and analyze it to um, see what's really uh, in there. But um, certainly, one could probably find you know physical justifications for for um, Gaussianity in the log domain. It's mm-hmm. very possible.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think uh, there there are always reasons why normal distributions are showing up, sort of. Somewhat uh, natural, yeah, but ag-
1: but again, I mean, if, the, if there is one thing for for listeners to remember from this conversation about path loss, I think it is that there is a lot of randomness in the in the path loss, and and it stems from from, from the shadowing, right? And mm. the important thing is that we incorporate that randomness um, when we use these models for uh, evaluation of performance.
0: Mm. So. Uh... What about other models that might be exact? Um, The the superposition of uh, user signals on the multiple access channel, is that an exact model?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it is fair to say that it is. I mean, superposition principle on the MAC channel is an immediate result of the superposition principle for the wave equation, which in turn is a consequence of the linearity of the wave equation, which in now the wireless context means the set of Maxwell's equations, so I think that we can deliver a one-word answer, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that also means that other types of interfering sources are typically additive, right?
1: That's correct, yes, Um, I think that is uncontested, I mean that, you know... These models for signal models that we like to write up, where you have your received signal equal to the desired signal plus, and then you have a sum over interfering signals. Then certainly the fact that we the fact that we have additivity there is uncontested, and results immediately from the wave equation. Hmm. Um, and also, of course, interfering signals if they stem from systems that we have control over and where we design the waveforms. Then the properties of those interfering signals will also be known exactly, right?
0: Hmm. So, other things, in your opinion, that we as communication theorists are often ignoring, but is really important for future system design.
1: Um, I think there are a number of things that many papers in comms and let's say comms in information theory also ignore then whether these are important for system design is really a bit of a little bit of a different question but Mm. things that are often ignored i think are related to like actual antenna arrangements and uh, um, how they relate to each other mutual coupling might be the most important effect there, which is typically almost always ignored. I mean, unless you look into literature on, on electromagnetics and antennas and so forth. But now, speaking of the comms and IT, uh, maybe SP also literature, uh, coupling is a horribly important effect. I mean, you know, if you have antennas that are closer than half a wavelength, then quickly coupling becomes the dominant <laughs> physical phenomenon, and you need a model.
0: Mm.
1: And uh, uh, along on, on the same train of thought here there's also this notion of power right which in the ITCOM SP papers are we say that power is the norm square of the signal vector or um, you know well that's that's a fair approximation in many cases Um, but it can also be a rather poor approximation of reality, especially, I mean, in, in conditions with, where coupl- coupling effects are, are, are strong, right? So bottom line is that the actual radiated power from an antenna or from a group or s- s- any source for that matter, but let's say an array of antennas, uh, isn't equal to what we call the power in uh, the signal models, I mean, the, nor- the X-norm square, right? Uh, they simply aren't aren't the same thing, uh, and in some cases they are even close to each other. If you have strong coupling effects, then the radiated power can be very different from just the sum of the squares of the voltages across the antennas or whatever. I mean, what we want our signal vector to represent. So, so that's another thing that we, we should be acutely aware of. And however, it's only really an issue if we put antennas closer to one another than than half a wavelength if the antennas are further, separated further apart then well it's still not exactly true that the radiated power is equal to the norm square of our signal vector, but it's a good enough approximation that we can move on. Yeah,
0: When it comes to like an OFDM type of system, if you're measuring the power that you think you're assigned to every subcarrier and you add them up, then on the average you you get more or less what you are supposed to radiate, but then you have this peak to average variations depending on how the subcarriers are actually adding up. If they're constructively or or, or not, uh, and that is also creating this uh, instantaneous variations,
1: yeah, certainly, I mean that alludes to I think also what does what does power mean, mm. right do we integrate over well So power in electromagnetics means that we have some source that could be an antenna or an array of antennas, any radiating source, and then we enclose that source with a a sphere or any closed surface for that matter, and then we integrate the pointing vector over that surface. That's the the radiated power. Um, But but, but I think what you're after here is that we might have a time and frequency varying (laughs) um, source distribution uh, which in turn might be modeled as a random process. And then of course we got to decide on what do we mean by power. Is it, is it the ensemble average of, of, of that randomness of, of the source or is it some time average or, or, or something else, right? So uh, certainly that's another thing to, to consider. Although that, this is a different point than the one that I attempted to make here that hmm. coupling effects make the, let's say <laughs> information theoretic notion of power the X norm square. Actually, different, and potentially, in some cases, very different from the actual from the the, the physical radiated
0: power. What about non-linearities and other imperfections in the electronics? Um, I had the impression that it's hard to create good models for that. Is that your impression as well?
1: I think it depends on what you're after. I mean, you know, look, if we have a power amplifier, then. The closer we push it to saturation, the the well, it has a nonlinear transfer function to start with. Um, I mean, non-linear input-output relationship, and um, it saturates because it can only deliver so much power. So the and and this becomes more important the, the higher we the the further we push it towards saturation. And now the question is, so do we need a model for this non-linearity? And uh, what do we need this model for? And this model can be could be used for at least two rather different things, right? Um, one thing is to examine. So now, given that we have these nonlinearities, what will the effect of that be on the radiate or, or on the amplified and eventually radiated uh, signal or radiated wave? And for that purpose, it's we we don't really need extremely accurate models i mean a simple polynomial model is is quite good and, and, and does the job for us in terms of explaining you know out of band radiation effects and so forth but on the other hand if we want a model which is good enough so that we can design a predistortion algorithm, say that inverts the non-linearity before we send the signal through the amplifier, then, then we would need a much more accurate model and maybe a simple <laughs> first or third <laughs> order polynomial just isn't good enough, right? Um, you would need some Volterra series or, or, or something with a lot of coefficients. Hmm. Um, so
0: yeah, yeah so if Was we your question <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So if we are raising our eyes a bit now to, to other layers, uh, when we are talking about millimeter wave communication so beyond, there's often the talk about blockage, which I suppose is when uh, material is essentially absorbing everything so you don't get any uh, through. Can we get uh, models for, for blockages and those t- type of things?
1: Yeah, so so blocking, I mean, it's partly modeled as a part of shadow fading that we talked about earlier, right? But I think if you go up into higher frequency bands, like millimeter waves and so forth, then um, we'll very much see that blocking is almost like a binary effect. I mean, if you have line of sight, you might have 30 dB SNR, and then you put your hand in between, and then the SNR drops, I don't know how how much, maybe, (laughs) orders of magnitude, tens of dB, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So you might rather be after something here like, um, a model of like a good and bad, a good versus bad kind of model. I mean, you could think of like the simplest way of modeling good versus bad, I guess, is the Gilbert Elliot, right? it's a Gilbert Elliott, right? Which is a two state markup chain. You have two states, either you are good or you are bad, and then you jump in between of the two states with some probability. So um, for for blocking, again, I mean, I think we got to distinguish between number one, the on one hand, the model of the actual physics what happens when you put an object in between well the wave will be reflected and absorbed and so forth and and number two what is the effect of the the eventual path loss and how does this effect vary with time and to the extent that this effect is random how do we appropriately model that and for the latter i think a simple Markov chain is probably Probably most of all we need here, Um, Hmm. link blocked or link not blocked. And then there is a possible transition in between the two states. Um, So certainly.
0: Yeah, when uh, we made an episode like a year ago about millimeter wave communications, I remember I I was reading about measurement from NYU in the 60 GHz band. And I think the human body is blocking like 40 decibels or something like that in those so you, you really drop from a strong not to nothing.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah and the higher the carry frequency is the worse is the, the this problem right because propagation becomes more and more like distinct race and um, blocking becomes more and more of an important phenomenon.
0: So what about traffic models uh, what what models are around there to say when does a user have data to uh, transmit or receive, and when does it not? Mm.
1: Yeah, so there are of course large classes of models and this goes I think beyond a little bit of things that I, <laughs> I know well enough that I can speak about from my heart. But... Uh, in principle, I mean, you, you have a full spectrum there, right? from, on one hand, very simple arrival models, like packets arrive according to a Poisson process in continuous time, then which is in a slotted time, the same as, or becomes Bernoulli. So fundamentally, they are like the same thing almost, or not from a mathematical perspective, but from operational uh, meaning point of view. So they, on one hand you have like simple models of that sort, and on the on the at the other end of the spectrum you have you, you of course have like advanced models that describe how do humans function and how do they generate data and how do they browse the web or <laughs> or, or you use applications and how do these applications then generate data, right? I think what's important in the end here, so this is a little bit like with the path loss models that, well the exact model you use doesn't make a huge difference. What is important is that you account for the randomness in the uh, traffic and account for the fact that well you know packets and bits will will come in bursts right sometimes it'll be some silent or or rather say sparsely populated segments in time and then there'll be some bursts where everyone suddenly wants to send at the same time and uh, we gotta model the fact that this randomness is going to be there and then the exact underlying we model that we use for it might be less important and in fact, is not, going to make a huge difference anyway in the end. It's a little bit like with with a path loss, right? If you had 3.7 in your exponent or, or you had 3. Point, what's the other number? 3.9, then <laughs> yeah, you're gonna see like a tiny little shift of your curves, but it's not gonna change anything qualitatively and it's not gonna affect anything that's important in your in your conclusions or your take-home points <laughs> in, in in your like papers. So I think that's really the message there. That we gotta figure out what are the first order effects uh, that we see and for traffic modeling modeling it is the like burstiness and the fact that users don't have like data all the time they have data that arrives randomly sometimes a little sometimes a lot sometimes huge bursts sometimes silent periods for a long time we're gonna account for that and we're gonna in some way to the first order model that uh, preferably using as like a simple Mathematical abstraction as possible, and then be aware that there is a lot of randomness, and we're going to account for that. We're going to build algorithms that are robust and function uh, under these conditions of this randomness, and even when the models that we have, let's say, postulated or used aren't accurate or even nearly so. I think that's really the take home uh, point there.
0: I do think that there is one aspect to there that. Um might be of importance as well that uh, uh, when we are having more and more other types of devices than, than human devices or we have a, a large variety of different applications uh, it might be possible to sort of separate that some kind of devices generate traffic of one type and some of another type. And even if they are generating on the average the same amount of bits per per hour, uh, depending on if you have many short packages or a few long packages, uh, you might want different types of protocols that have different overheads to set up the transmissions every time. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think, well, machines and devices that we build and operate, they are easier to control than humans, right? And they are easier to to predict. In fact, we can tell them how to behave. And if you tell them how to behave, then we know how how they behave. So you could program your machine-type device to be active according to some pattern that you know, we have determined right, and then that takes, of course, away the randomness. But if you have a human, then you can predict to some extent that you know I get up at six thirty and I make my coffee. Right? That's with probability <laughs> very close to one. But <laughs> you can you can't predict like small uh, um, uh, variations in you sit and browse the web exactly how we are gonna download the, the 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 bits and and. and <laughs> um, and and, um, and so forth on the application layer. So definitely, I think you're right. I mean, separating the two types of, of traffic and understanding that they are different in their characteristics in the sense that m- the machines, in principle, we could make behave in a certain manner, whereas when, when humans are the end users, then, yeah, we can predict to some extent but we'll never be able to fully and and above all we'll never be able i think to come up with a simple mathematical model that describes how a human behaves and and acts when using an an application uh, in in a wireless system
0: so so i have a last question for you now Uh, and if it's like this that uh, particularly for path loss models and for these traffic models and things like this that the way that we are generating the models is that we are making measurements and then we decide on uh, I would like to have a parameterized model of this kind and then we try to fit the data to that one uh, by finding these exponents and the standard deviation of the shadow fading and things like this. Uh, Do you think we should stop being the one selecting the models that we fit to data and that we should uh, have uh, instead machines that do machine learning and find the models for us, uh, is -hmm. that the future?
1: Good question, I I, I think to some extent we are heading a little bit that way right, but first what does it mean to have a machine learning algorithm develop a model? Well what a machine learning algorithm can do at best is to find a mathematically a mathematical description of what it has seen right of the training data of the, of the observations uh, unfortunately that mathematical description is extremely complicated in the sense that i mean it, it's essentially a non-linear function right i mean if you think of a neural network for example it's non it is a non-linear function with a lot of coefficients millions of coefficients and The real question then is that, what is the added value of having a model with millions of coefficients as opposed to five coefficients? Well, it might be valuable if the object is to predict performance in some very particular environment or or set of circumstances. But returning to my previous point um, regarding the importance of just modeling, I mean, or acknowledging randomness, then it might also be that, well, what's truly important here is to to have a model that to the first order captures the physical phenomena that we, that we are exposed to and that recognizes there is a, that there is a lot of randomness um, there that, that might be sufficient. So I'm just not sure how large the added value is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that this can be done, no doubt. Uh, we could imagine a... Uh, device to just well you just collect every channel impulse response you've ever seen right and you throw that into a neural network and you you tell it to now based on this generate some artificial channel responses for me and, and obviously that's doable but the question is how large is the added value as compared to just using the rayleigh model <laughs> or, or something yeah and uh, there's also a risk that we lose the elegance and beauty of actual rigorous mathematics right because that's something we should keep in mind that uh, some of them also we talked about here they are very simple in their analytical form and we can easily write them up with pen and paper and we can convey i think at least some first order intuitive understanding for what they mean and how they work
0: yeah no, I think one should remember that the reason that we have been using it is sometimes very simple model, like it's a fine function of distance plus log normal when it comes to the path loss. It's not because we couldn't add two more terms that varied with the distance in a different way, but it was just because it's, it fits rather well and we don't want to overfit things completely. Mm-hmm. So yeah. from that perspective, it makes sense. Uh, so so. We, Uh, Yeah, and uh, one final thing that I would like to bring up is also that uh, uh, we also should be careful we're not using too simplistic models just because it's analytically uh, more tractable to analyze certain things by hand. Uh, We should remember is this model actually uh, giving us the the right answer or should we use a slightly more complicated but not overly complicated model in order to get more accurate conclusions. Uh, So yeah, maybe use detractable models for algorithmic design and the more uh, detailed ones for uh, analysis. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think if we were to summarize in like one punchline, that's not a bad one. Um, Do you have
0: a final word? <laughs>
1: <laughs> not really beyond that, I mean um, possibly reiterating the point that I think I made several times that there's a lot of randomness right, in uh, the phenomena that we are trying to model, especially propagation, but also like behavior of um, users and humans and so forth. And the, the, the very most important thing might be in fact that we capture that in the, the uh, algorithms that we, uh, and, and, and models that we design, and then the exact way we capture it is really um, maybe less important uh, in, in many cases, yeah.
0: Great, so if you as a listener have your input, I think the best way of sharing that is by writing a comment to our YouTube video and then we get the discussion started there as well. So we are monitoring that one and try to be involved in the discussions. So with that, thank you for listening to yet another episode of Wireless Future. And thank you Eric for answering and sharing your thoughts around this topic.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you, Emil. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.